Okay. Once again, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to pray for Nate. And um, yeah, as we continue on our, this part of our service here. So dear God, we thank you so much for our friend and our brother, Nathan, and just who you've created him to be. And we just ask right now as he uh, shares his heart of just all the things that you've placed in there for us this morning that our ears and our eyes will be open, our minds to just receive all the good things that you have in store for us through your word. And so bless Nathan with your wonderful holy presence that he may be free to just share all the things that come from you this, this morning, this day. We pray in your name, amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Good morning, good morning. Good to see you. Um, I'm excited uh, to speak. I'm a little nervous. I think, uh, as I was mentioning to Rose, excitement is trumping nervousness right now, so that's good. Um, I want to thank Gordy for uh, the privilege he's given me uh, to speak this morning. And, oh, amen. Um, so, as you can see, uh, I'm going to be talking on Psalm 23, uh, and uh, before we get into it, I'd like to read it all together, um, uh, and then I'll talk a bit more about it. So, we have the NIV version, I think it's big enough for everyone to see, so if we could read that all together to start. So, I'll count to three, one, two, three. <laughs> The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Great. Thank you. So, uh, Psalm 23, um, one of the most famous uh, passages in Scripture, probably, if, especially if you grew up in a church back with a church background. Even if you didn't, you've probably heard it many different places. Um, that, along with John 3.16, is probably one of the most uh, famous parts of Scripture. Um, so for me, uh, my journey with this psalm uh, recently has taken me uh, over a course of many months. I've, uh, I decided to, on the way to work, uh, meditate on this psalm and 
kind of slowly repeat it over and over again to see what uh, God would show me if I did this over a period of time. So uh, I work at Regent, and as I would drive there, I would slowly uh, recite this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, along with the Lord's Prayer. And um, yeah, it was very interesting to see what, uh, what words, uh, phrases would jump out on different days. And so this talk today will be incorporating some of that, but I must admit the meat of my reflection is built on commentaries and biblical scholars, uh, three in particular. Uh, one is a professor at Regent named Ian Proven, great OT scholar. Another is uh, Jean Vanier, who wrote a book uh, reflecting on the Good Shepherd, and also a gentleman by the name of Mac Brunson. So I must give them props, as it were, for that. My reflections will be a side dish to their, uh, their meat. So. Um, so yes, Psalm 23, um, a little background on it. Uh, most people agree that David wrote this psalm. Um, there is some debate of when he actually wrote it, uh, whether he wrote it when he was a shepherd in the pastures tending sheep, or if he wrote it when he was an older man looking back on his life. And uh, most scholars agree that uh, it was at this point when he was an older, more mature adult looking back at his life experience when he wrote this uh, psalm. And that's the angle I'll be taking today um, of uh, looking at a David who wrote this psalm uh, from uh, a lot of life experience. And so uh, to prepare uh, us to reflect on this psalm, I'd like to do a quick flyover of David's life. I re read through First and Second Samuel and took out some major points to give us a little bit of context of what he's gone through uh, when he's writing this psalm. So, of course, uh, as many of you know, he starts off, we are introduced to him as a shepherd. He's a shepherd in the fields, he's tending sheep, he's protecting them, he's leading them to green pastures, to, to water. Um, and then next we hear Samuel's in town. He's meeting with Jesse, David's father. He asked Jesse, line up your sons, there's going to be anointing happening today. And uh, so all his sons are lined up except for David. David's still off in the pasture. Samuel goes down the line. God says, no, not this one, no, not this one, no, not this one. And Samuel finally gets to the end. It's none of them. He asks Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Of course, there's David in the field. Jesse says, well, there's David. You know, do you really want him? Samuel says, yep, bring him on in. So David comes over. Uh, God says, this is my man. Uh, Samuel anoints him and as the next uh, king of uh, Israel. And you can imagine uh, the incredulity of his father and brothers as his brothers seem much more qualified to be the next king. They're, they're bigger, maybe better looking, but God says, no, I'm looking at David's heart, and this is my man. So he's anointed by Samuel. This starts his, I guess you say, uh, ascent uh, uh, life trajectory is on an upward tick. He's invited into Saul's courts to play music for Saul. Saul uh, has been rejected 
as king by God. He's tormented by an evil spirit. David comes in. He's playing, I guess it's the lyre. It's like the, the Old Testament guitar, you know, kind of thing, rocking and rolling. And that calms uh, Saul down. And so uh, he's in the royal circle, circles now uh, at this point. And then we come to a famous battle, Israelites versus Philistines. And there is one nine-foot Philistine that most of you will know as Goliath. And he is taunting Israel constantly. He's saying, come on out, you're gonna, we'll settle this one versus one. And he does this for 40 days. And David's brothers are there, but David's back tending sheep. And David comes to the battle with cheese and provisions for his brothers. And he sees this going on, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to settle this right now. And, this is how, and so, uh, as you do when you take cheese to your brothers in battle, you decide to take on a nine-foot giant. So, he does, he takes on this nine-foot giant, he kills him, the Philistines are routed, and this makes David's name famous in Israeli circles. Um, he becomes best buds with King Saul's son, Jonathan. Um, his his name is, is chanted uh, in song. There's, they sing, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. So everything seems great. He's anointed. He's, 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 he's in the royal courts. He's slain a great dragon. Oh, dragon. Yes, yeah, you might have seen like a dragon. A great giant. Uh, maybe breathing fire like a dragon. I don't know. And uh, yes, and now people love him because of his heroics in, uh, in battle uh, after this point. Um, so everything seems to be just tacking up. And then Saul decides, you know what, I'm going to start trying to kill this guy because this is not good. He's going to take my throne away from me. And so he tries various things to try to kill David. David flees to the wilderness, is, uh, back to where he was tending sheep. And for years, he's on the run as Saul tries to take him out. So his anointing, he was going up, and now it's this huge kind of uh, detour on this path towards becoming king. During this time, he has many, time, many opportunities to try to kill Saul, but he doesn't take, take them. He says, this is not my job. It is the Lord's job to deal with Saul. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And through this time of fleeing, he also receives encouraging words uh, for example, uh, Jonathan, as I mentioned, Jonathan, Saul's son, becomes best buds with David, so there's a tension there. You have Saul, you have David, Jonathan in the middle. But Jonathan comes to David and says, you know what? You are going to be king. My father knows that, and I'm going to be second underneath you. Which is a very radical thing to say, because Jonathan is uh, the king's son. He would have been next in line to become king, but he said, no, that's not going to happen. You are going to be King David, and I'm going to be underneath you. Pretty radical thing to say. So after all these years of fleeing, Saul finally dies, uh, and you think, okay, well, David's next in line. Let's, let's get this going. But no, there's a faction that still are on the side of Saul who fight for David, uh, fight against David, rather, for many more years so it takes about 15 years, finally, after the, from the anointing by Samuel to when he finally becomes king. So there's a very, it's a very uh, trying and testing road that David is on. So he becomes king, and you think, well, okay, everything is going to be rosy. Well, then we, he meets 
or sees Bathsheba. And if you know about the story, he ha Bathsheba is married to another man. David has an affair with Bathsheba. David has Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband killed. And as a result, the son that they had dies. They have another son named Solomon who will become king. Uh, but there is another son, Absalom, who wins over a faction of the people and decides to usurp his father, who's King David at this point. So once again, David's off into the wilderness. He's in the wilderness as a shepherd. He's in the wilderness escaping Saul. Now he's fleeing from his own son. Absalom dies. David weeps. He wishes, he wishes that he had died and not Absalom. He returns to Jerusalem, the city that's now named after him, the city of David. He sings out a song of praise to God in 2 Samuel. He calls, he calls God his deliverer, his rocks, his refuge. And it's interesting, he's not saying God is the rock, God is the fortress. He's saying God is uh, my rock, my refuge. It's a personal thing to David, wrought over many years of experiencing God coming through for him. Um, he declares Solomon to be the next king in his old age. And then finally in 1 Kings 2, it says, Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel. So it's a really, really quick flyover of his life. So he's a man of poetry and of passion, of words and war. He was an imperfect man that served and followed a perfect God passionately with his whole life. A man who constantly talked to God about the good, the bad, the ugly. He pleaded and praised. He defended the poor and he was provided for. So against that, let's look at this psalm. Um, the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So since we have a shepherd here, there must be sheep. So let's talk a little bit about sheep. I don't know if anyone knows a lot about sheep, but sheep generally are not the brightest animal. Uh, they like to travel in packs, so much so that if one sheep uh, goes astray, the others, if they're not stopped, will follow this sheep, no matter where this sheep goes, even into peril or death. Uh, they're pretty helpless. They can't defend themselves other than kind of banding together in a group. Um, interesting fact I found out, if sheep get bloated, um, maybe a bit more graphic than somebody, some, some people want, but if they get bloated, they, uh, they will go back on their backs with their legs stuck in the air and they can't move. It's the weirdest thing. I was like, really? Okay. They have poor eyesight. They are easily startled, and they're easily spooked. Now you think, okay, if there's only sheep in BC, sheep would be fine. Because generally, if you've seen sheep here, there's a fence around them. They're near people, near houses. would keep predators away. They'd be fine. But in this environment... Um, it is not at all like that. Uh, where David shepherded in the ancient east, it was rocky. It was barren. It was a dry landscape. In the dry season, 
uh, it hardly rains, all this, the lush grass would be burned off. There would be no fence. It'd be uh, an environment full of predators. It'd be full of bandits trying to steal the sheep. It was not designed for sheep at all, at all. Um, so talking about shepherds now, um, it was a common enough profession in this time. Though, uh, as uh, we've seen, it might be something that is a profession that's not exactly desirable, something you want to kind of move on from. As we see David tending sheep while his brothers went out to battle and got the glory, or when uh, the lineup for Samuel's anointing was here, they didn't even really consider uh, David uh, went in that lineup until Samuel asked. So you'd, you would think that this job is maybe for people that maybe are not quite as capable for the young or for the older. Um, but the imagery of uh, uh, a shepherd is applied to kings in this time. The job is something, uh, you set the job aside, but the image of kings as shepherding their people was a very common thing, uh, not just in Israel, but in other cultures around. A uh, king, like a shepherd, would have to know his flock well, know when they're hungry, know when they needed defending. Um, it would be about being with the flock. Uh, supporting the flock, helping the flock out. Isaiah 40 um, gives us an image of God as a shepherd towards Israel. It says, God will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them on his bosom and gently lead those that are young. And uh, it's interesting, right behind me, we have a picture. I, I was walking in this morning and I'd forgotten about that. Oh, that's kind of neat. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so that's an image of a shepherd coming and uh, taking care of helpless lambs. Um, again, I will mention this first verse says, the Lord is my shepherd. Again, personalizing it, it's not just a general concept to David. It is an actual reality in his life. And it says, he lacked nothing. Psalm 34 also touches on this. It says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. So we have a connection of fearing God and lacking nothing. The verse goes on to say, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those that seek the Lord lack no good thing. So we have fearing and seeking, and somehow that's connected to lacking no good thing. Uh, another way of uh, saying this verse, uh, or another word for seek, would be searching after, or asking of the Lord, or questioning the Lord. So there's something about fearing and searching after and asking and questioning that's wrapped up in not lacking any good thing, or lacking nothing. And we can see this in David's life. He was a person that constantly was questioning and searching and asking of the Lord, and he feared him greatly. And he saw him as his provider, and he truly said here he lacked nothing. Now, I don't like to have to ask. I don't like this concept of being a sheep, being helpless. Um, it's not something uh, that I find very comfortable. But David, uh, this is where he shines through, I think. 
being in a position of a sheep. He is a mighty warrior. He's, he's more than capable on the battlefield. He's a poet. He's a singer. He's a musician. And he's a most willing sheep as well, consistently presenting his situation to God. And he has seen God come through for him over his life. The Lord is his shepherd. He lacks nothing. So verse 2. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now, uh, scholars see the phrase of green pastures uh, equaling pastures of tender grass. So this isn't just any kind of regular grass. It's not a shepherd that's just saying, well, you know what, this green stuff here, this is fine, this is grass. He has a very specific patch of grass. He says, no, I'm taking you over here. This stuff is the stuff that you're going to love. It's tender grass. And it would have been hard to find as we think about the terrain. A shepherd would have had to know the best spots to take his sheep because it was a rocky terrain. Vegetation was very sparse in that place. The shepherd can provide for sheep even in those circumstances. Um, one phrase that did I remember jumping out to me over my time of reflecting on this on the way to work was this phrase, he makes me lie down. And I thought, why would the sheep be need, uh, how do I, let's back up. Why would the sheep need to be made to lie down? Like you think, okay, sheep, tender grass, they're going to stop, they're going to eat this. Why do they need to be made to stop? to eat this. And I was thinking about this, and I was, I was thinking maybe perhaps the suggestion here is that sometimes we as sheep, we need to be made to stop to enjoy and see the lushness that's around us that we might otherwise miss if we kept going. Um, I was thinking about my own tendency here to kind of speed through life onto the next thing. And I always think too that the grass is greener on the proverbial other side. It's like, well, this is good, but I think that grass over there is probably better, and I'm always kind of moving. And so maybe, uh, I was thinking, maybe the idea is here that uh, he makes us stop, and, and that's the only time we can actually see his provision at times. And that's when we can really see how he's providing for us. Yes. <laughs> I also thought that I am a pretty stubborn sheep. I think all through this. Uh, a sheep is supposed to be a follower, uh, to depend on the shepherd, and that is something I really need to improve on, and I, I need to improve on trusting him more as a provider of necessities uh, of my life and being able to stop and see them when he has provided. Verse 3. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Now, restores means to, to bring back, uh, to make it what it once was, to turn around. And we've talked about rest. We've talked about food. We've talked about water. All this is part of restoration, the reviving of the soul. And uh, the ancient Israelites saw the soul as not something that was separate from their body, from their physical body. So when they took on physical food and drink and had rest, 
restore their physical body. It was also restoring their soul. It was connected, the whole of the person, mind, body, and soul. And I think that's very relevant today. Um, and it also says, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Now, names, as many people know, are very important in the Old Testament. People and places uh, were given names that represented the very essence, who they were, what it was. Uh, for example, the names of God. He has many different names. And so he guides us as a shepherd because he loves and cares for us, cares for us, of course, but also because of his reputation and his name. He, that is why he's guiding us on the right paths. Or that sometimes the translation could be the right tracks uh, of righteousness. Now, sheep need to be guided. They have no natural sense of direction. As I mentioned, one sheep goes this way, other sheep will follow unless they're curbed. Um, and so if sheep need to be guided, and we are sheep as believers, uh, we are meant to be guided as well. And that is, again, humbling and hard for me to admit because I'm very stubborn. I like to go my own way at the times. Uh, but it's a choice to be made to follow a shepherd. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, uh, many of you might know this verse as saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, this is, uh, I should put the TNIV, the New International Version, which changes it a little bit to say darkest valley. Um, they feel it's a bit of a better translation, or it could be also termed deadly darkness. It's not solely about death, and that's why I think they changed it, um, even though Israelites would have associated darkness with death, but it also includes very trying, difficult, and dangerous situations. Now, the valley here could be many valleys. Uh, uh, it, it could be a literal valley of the shadow of death. Some scholars think there's an actual valley called the shadow of death, not far from Jericho. They think it was about four and a half miles long and as deep as 1,500 feet. And some sections would have been uh, as wide as 12 to 14 feet. So you think of David, you think of him leading sheep through this valley. You think of him being down as far as he, uh, as possibly 1,500 feet. If you're looking up, you're not seeing any sunlight, if any at all. Uh, it's going to be very dark. It's going to uh, take all your wits to get your sheep through this this valley as best you can. You don't can't see what's ahead of you. You can't see if there are predators or bandits uh, or anything like that. Um, one very interesting thing I found is, or I thought it was interesting at least. You see, verse three said the last part of the verse says, "He guides me along the right paths." The next one, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I was like. Are these connected at all? Like, okay, I'm going on the right path, but then the very next verse is this path is going through the valley of the shadow of death or the darkest valley. How is that the right path? And 
So I was thinking about this, and I read uh, that one scholar uh, commented on this. That he said, even though the way is dangerous, sometimes the shepherd must lead the flock through these dark places. There's no avoiding them because the destination is on the other side, and there's no other way. So paradoxically, sometimes the dark way is the right way. And I was like, whoa, that, it takes a lot of trust in the shepherd's guidance, a lot of discernment. Um, but yeah, I thought that was something that I'm continuing to kind of uh, reflect on, that thought. Um, one more thought on what kind of valley this could be. Uh, perhaps the most famous valley that David walked across was the Valley of Elah. As we mentioned, he battled Goliath. The Israelites are on one side, the Philistines on the other, and between them was the Valley of Elah. And you could imagine darkness and death permeating that atmosphere after many, many days of Goliath uh, uh, taunting and challenging the Israelites and them looking at him as this giant as he was. Um, you can imagine how they felt and how that atmosphere was full of fear as he walked out into the valley, selected his stones carefully, and met uh, his enemy on the battlefield. He knows the Lord is with him. He has experienced God's rescue in this place. Uh, he knows that God will rescue him, rather, because he's experienced God's rescue before in pastures from lions, from bears when David was protecting his flock. So he brings this sense of God's presence with him into this valley, soon to be the valley of death, or a very dark place as well. One more word I, I like in this verse is through. Even though I walk through the valley, it's not the destination. It's a place we need to walk through as we follow uh, the, the shepherd. It's not a permanent place to be. I will fear no evil. Psalm 27 speaks to this. It says, When the Lord is the light, the salvation, and the strength of your life, you have no reason to fear. And it seems that David did this. He consistently gave over the job of the light, the salvation, the strength, the guidance, the protection of his life to God, whose rod, or as one scholar would say, whose big whacking stick protected him and whose staff guided and rescued him from tight situations, just as David would have used his rod and his staff to protect his own Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So in the presence of his enemies, right in front, in full view, this banquet is being prepared. We see God uh, moving from the role of shepherd and guide to becoming a generous host, the ultimate in hospitality here, as we will see. Now, hosting people in this time was a very, very important thing. 
it was taken so seriously that if, uh, if needed, a host would be required to lay down his or her life for his or her guests in this time. Now, as mentioned, this banquet, this table is being prepared before the psalmist's enemies. They see this person as not worthy of what is being done for him. They see him as an outcast. We see God, uh, he doesn't care about public opinion. What people think is the right thing to do for someone. He does it in front of them. He welcomes this outcast with anointing oil, which has many meanings. Um, it's a luxury item. It's symbolic of great wealth to be anointed with oil. As we know, David was anointed early on as a shepherd to be the next king. It's also a symbol of great blessing. And also, the overflowing cup is also a symbol of great abundance and blessing for a person. Uh, one more thing uh, regarding oil for uh, shepherds. They would use oil mixed with uh, sulfur and different spices and rub it all over sheep's heads to protect them from irritants such as parasites or insects or flies. And it will also help to uh, heal or soothe sheep's wounds. And so as this is being poured over the psalmist's head, it would soothe him as well. Maybe if he had any wounds, it would also help to heal those and be, have a reviving effect. Uh, talking about the cup again, one of the host's jobs was to make sure that the guest's cup was never empty. Um, if a guest drank from his cup or her cup, it was filled again immediately and continually to make sure the guest had more than enough. However, if someone took a drink and the host did not refill it, it meant that it was time for the guest to leave. But here we see the cup being filled and filled to overflowing and spilling onto the ground. And that is like saying, everything I have is yours. I will meet your needs with everything I have. And this is the kind of host, the kind of shepherd that we see here. One that fills David's cup to overflowing. And lastly, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of my favorite alternative translations of a word in the whole psalm is in this verse, and it's the word follow. Uh, some people point out that an actual better translation of this word is pursue or chase. And so if we read it like that, surely your goodness and love will chase after me. Surely your goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. It gives me a much more active sense of God's goodness and mercy than it's simply following behind me, maybe waiting for me uh, to turn around and, and notice it. This is uh, God's mercy uh, and love at its proactive best. It's looking to overtake David. And as he writes this, as David writes this, again, probably pointing back, uh, looking back rather, uh, over his life, through all the trials and hardships and dangers, he sees this goodness and mercy pursuing him. And it's rather remarkable, given David's crazy life, what's happened to him. 
And some people might take what uh, happened to David as evidence that God isn't good, God isn't merciful, if they had gone through what David had. But on the contrary, David sees God's goodness and mercy vaulting over hills and valleys and ravines to get to him with the end goal through all this of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, having constant communion with him. So the host, the Lord, gracious hospitality, does it in front of his enemies, invites the guest in, anoints his head with oil, his cup is overflowing. And this symbolizes as well that the guest is invited to be with the host forever. So that is uh, just a brief uh, uh, reflection and thought on this psalm. What I'd like to do uh, now is read it one more time, and I'd like to do read it uh, myself. And if you would like to sit there quietly, close your eyes, maybe look at Jesus the Lamb, um, and see what God might want to say uh, to you uh, through this uh, second reading. So we'll take some time to do that now. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.